If you think you need expensive GPUs to get started with artificial intelligence, then think again. Use your existing Intel Xeon processors on Dell PowerEdge servers to get started today, with exciting AI use cases from finance to healthcare and more. Dell EMC and Intel are proud to sponsor the AI thought leaders on the Voices in AI podcast. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Tim O'Reilly. He is, of course, the founder and CEO of O'Reilly Media Inc. In addition to his role at O'Reilly, he is also a partner at an early stage venture firm, O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures. And he is on the board of Maker Media, which was spun out from O'Reilly back in 2012. He's on the board of Code for America, Peer J, Civis Analytics, and PopFox. He is the person who popularized the terms open source and Web 2.0. He holds an undergrad degree from Harvard in the classics. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hi, uh, thanks very much. I'm glad to be on it. I should add one other thing to my bio, which is that uh, I'm also the author of a forthcoming book about technology and the economy called uh, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us, uh, which in a lot of ways is a a memoir, uh, what I've learned from studying computer platforms over the last 30 years and reflections on the lessons of technology platforms for the broader economy and, uh, and the choices that we have to make as a society. Well, I'll start there. What is the future then? If you know, I want to I wanna know that right away. Well, uh, the, the point of uh, it, it is not that there is one future. There are many possible futures, and uh, we actually have a great role. There's a, a, a very scary narrative in which technology is seen as an inevitability. You know, for example, technology wants to eliminate jobs. You know, that's what it's for. And, you know, I, I go through, for example, the, you know, looking at algorithms at Google and Facebook and the like. And, and I say, okay, if you, what you really learn when you study it is uh, all of these algorithms have a fitness function that they're being managed towards. And uh, this doesn't actually change in the world of AI. You know, AI is simply uh, new techniques that are still trying to, you know, go towards uh, human goals. And so the thing we have to be afraid of is not AI becoming independent and going after its own goals. Uh, It's, you know, what I refer to as the Mickey and the broomsticks problem, which is we're creating these machines, we're turning them loose, uh, and we're telling them to do the wrong things because they do exactly what we tell them to do, but we haven't thought through the consequences. And a lot of what's happening in, you know, the world today is the result of bad instructions to the machines that we have built. Uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, our financial markets are a lot like Google and Facebook. You know, they, they are increasingly automated, uh, they, but they also uh, have a, a fitness function. You know, if you look at Google, their fitness function on both the search and the advertising side is relevance. Uh, you look at Facebook, it's, you know, loosely could be described as engagement. And we've increasingly for the last 40 years have been managing our economy around make money for the stock market. And we've seen as a result, the hollowing out of the economy. And, uh, you know, to apply this very concretely to AI, 
uh, I'll bring up a conversation I had, uh, you know, with an AI pioneer uh, recently, where he told me he was investing in a company that would get rid of, you know, 30% of call center jobs was his estimate. And I said, have you used a call center? Were you happy with the service? Why are you talking about using AI to get rid of these jobs rather than to make the service better? You know, and I wrote a piece, which is actually wrote after the book, so it's not in the book, but the, an analysis of, you know, Amazon. They've, in the same three years in which they added 45,000 robots to their factories, they've added hundreds of thousands of human workers. And the reason is because they're saying, oh, our master design pattern isn't cut costs and, you know, reap greater profits. It's keep upping the ante, keep doing more. And I actually start off the article by talking about my broken tea kettle and how I got a new one the same day so I could you know, have my tea the next morning with no, no interruption. You know, and it used to be that, that Amazon would give you free two-day shipping and then it was free one-day shipping and then in many cases free same-day shipping. And this is why they have this incredible fanatical customer focus and they're using the technology to actually do more. And I, I, you know, my case has been that if we actually, you know, shift from the fitness function being a, you know, sort of efficiency and shareholder value through driving increased profits, uh, to instead actually creating value in society, which is something we can quite easily do, uh, you know, we're going to have a very, very different economy and a very, very different political conversation that we're having right now. You used the phrase a minute ago, hollow that that. The technology we've created has hollowed out the economy. What, what, what does that mean? Well, um, one of the things that I look at in, in the book is, is my sort of history of exposure to uh, various kinds of technology platforms. So, for example, if you look at um, uh, the, 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 sort of the platform wars of my youth, which are now ancient history for, for, for many people, uh, you know, the, the battle between Microsoft and, and the rest of the world and the rise of the PC. You know, Microsoft was originally this huge value creator in the, and the personal computer was this, you know, hugely explosive ecosystem. It was the internet of its day, right? Much smaller in scale, obviously. But, you know, the democratization of computing, where you went from thousands of computers being sold to millions of computers being sold. And there's this huge ecosystem of, of uh, software companies. Microsoft became the platform over time, first with DOS and then with Windows. They took control of the industry with software and they proceeded to squeeze everybody else out. And what happened was everybody went away to, uh, you know, to the internet where there was still money to be made and we built this next generation of platforms that we see today. And, uh, and now we're watching the same story be replayed as uh, these internet platforms increasingly compete with their ecosystem and uh, take more and more of the value for themselves. Uh, we see this in the broader economy where, you know, the profits of the financial industry, if you think of, of, of finance as being a platform technology for society as a whole. Uh, you now have 3% of the economy taking 25% of all corporate profits. Uh, you know, and, and so platform after platform makes this mistake of, uh, of basically killing the, the, you know, the goose that was laying the golden eggs. 
Whereas, you know, uh, what you really want to see in a platform is you have consistent value creation for the ecosystem of the platform. And so I, you know, in, in the book, I kind of try to draw this lesson for why, for example, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft have to keep thinking about the drivers, not just the customers. You know, because we've had this idea that as long as you take care of the customers only, uh, you're good. But you have to take care of your entire ecosystem. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, understanding that and, and, you know, really looking at the lessons of, of technology platforms actually gives us a fair amount of guidance for how to think about the economy as a whole. So are you advocating, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to follow this, are you advocating policy or are you advocating just a shift in how we view things or? or? Well, uh, to, but both. I think I'm, I'm advocating, uh, on the one hand, I'm advocating self-interest on the part of platform providers. Uh, you know, so, and, and changing the narrative about technology. You know, and when I say changing the narrative, I don't mean as in PR spin changing the narrative. I mean changing the narrative around what people understand as the levers of advantage. You know, so for example, when I worked on open source, it was like, oh, you know, you used to think that the levers of competitive advantage came from proprietary software and hang on to it. I have news for you. The levers of, of competitive advantage have changed. Uh, it, you know, software is becoming a commodity. People are giving it away for free. Uh, and it, originally, I was just saying something else is going to become valuable. Eventually, I was able to say, and now I know what it is. It's big data and uh, collective intelligence. That was, you know, the Web 2.0, you know, storyline. Uh, and, you know, and, and so, you know, changing the narrative, you know, in that case was like, this is how you do it right. And I think that's what I'm trying to do again. I'm going to say we have had this narrative that said, uh, you know, use technology to disrupt, use technology to, uh, you know, do things more efficiently than the competition, uh, uh, you know, effectively blow them out of the water and then take, the mar- take over the market. And that doesn't actually take you where you need to go. And, you know, I try to tell a story, which actually originally I have centered uh, in a lot of ways around Uber and Lyft and uh, as sort of uh, model companies. You know, when I look at uh, what I call the next economy companies, you know, uh, they are platforms. First of all, they are platforms, but they're real world platforms, not just software platforms. You know, things like Uber and Airbnb are, are, are uh, you know, managing, you know, real world services, access to devices and so on. And if you tease that apart into a business model, you kind of say, oh, okay, it's a matching marketplace. You know, so what's really interesting about on-demand is it's uh, a marketplace of customers and a marketplace of drivers as suppliers. And they're kept algorithmically in balance. So you have this really interesting you know, algorithmic uh, system, which eventually could be AI. Right now it's you know, a bunch of smart statistics and routing algorithms and and you know logistics math, um, uh, but you kind of see. Uh, but the fundamental, you know, really interesting thing is that the Uber or Lyft driver is what I would call an augmented worker. You know, they're cognitively augmented, and you don't usually people wouldn't think of it as cognitive augmentation, but of course it is. 
uh, you know, in the same way that a, a you know a a you know a bulldozer operator you know is a physically augmented you know uh, ditch digger you know <laughs> or the the uh, 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 you know the the crane operator in a port you know loading containers is you know is a uh, uh, you know a, a physically augmented uh, uh, longshoreman uh, the you know, here's somebody who's doing something that was previously impossible. I mean, before taxi cab, you had to stand on the street and they would come by or they wouldn't come by, but you were out of luck unless that happened. Or you could call and maybe they could dispatch someone. But there was this magic where we now have this new capability of GPS. And it's been around for quite a while. But eventually, you know, through a series of circumstances, you know, Travis and uh, Garrett Camp figured out, wow, we could actually, you know, summon the car to any arbitrary location because both the driver and the passenger know where they are and they have this new sense, right? So that's the first level of cognitive augmentation. But then it was uh, sidecar and Lyft figured out the other piece of the equation because Uber was just black cars. They figured out that, that in order to have enough drivers, to really fill out the marketplace for other than, than a small segment of, of, of well-off people, you'd get ordinary people to supply their cars, right? And you could do that because once again, those drivers are cognitively augmented. You know, it used to be that you had to be a professional driver because, hey, somebody says, I want to go to such and such address. You need to really know the city, you know? Uh, you need to have a lot of experience knowing the best routes. Well, guess, guess what? With, with these apps and with Google Maps and Waze, anybody can do it. So, so I start looking at that and I go, okay, so, so we have here uh, a, a marketplace of small businesses managed by algorithms to help them match up with customers. Uh, the, the, the job of the platform is to augment those businesses to help them be successful. And then I say, so okay, so how well are Uber and Lyft living up to this? I mean, they, they're treating their drivers as commodities. They start talking about, well, once we have self-driving cars, we'll be able to get rid of the drivers. <laughs> and they're going, you know, yeah, maybe. But And, and they, they've started to change their tune a little bit. But, you know, I said, look, Uber, you actually had a much more interesting narrative when, when you, for example, started having a day when you deliver flu shots. Because guess what? Even, you know, the, the general law, which I originally kind of expressed uh, with Clay Christensen back in 2004, he called it the law of conservation of attractive profits. And that's what helped me get from uh, open source to Web 2.0 was that when one thing becomes a commodity, something else becomes valuable. So if, if self-driving cars commoditize driving, you have to ask yourself what becomes valuable. And I think it's going to be new kinds of augmentation for humans new kinds of services that you'll put on top of, of driving. And, uh, you know, uh, both, you know, uh, John Stimmer and Logan Green over at Lyft and some people at Uber are starting to talk about this and understand that. But you don't have it. I, I was in at San Quentin uh, giving a, a, a talk to the members of this group called The Last Mile, where they basically train inmates in computer science. And this guy's saying, well, I have an idea for the startup I, I want to do when I get out. <laughs> and he was like, I, I, I used to work in Fisherman's Wharf and all these people, they can, this Uber and Lyft, they can get anywhere, but they don't know what to go see. You know, I think it'd be really great to have a tour guide service. You know? and, and you go, yeah, a tour guide service on top of Uber and Lyft. You know? Uh, you know, that's just a simple example, but this is guys, an inmate just come up with this. And you kind of, if you, if you understand, 
you know, these dynamics, which is that we're going to have a, a marketplace and you want to enable new kinds of services on your platform, you're going to think very differently than if you think, well, this is an extracted platform where I'm basically going to take all the value for the platform. Because what's going to happen ultimately if you do that is, is uh, you know, somebody else is going to come along and, and, and create value for the entire ecosystem. That's fascinating. So what's the name of the book again? It's called WTF. What's the future and why it's up to us. And it's and already out? It's uh, coming out in uh, beginning of October from Harper Business. All and right. You can, you, can already, you can already order it on Amazon. Uh, you know, the, the, the pause in my, in my voice is I'm, I'm thinking about nine different, different ways to take all that and run with it. Um, mm -hmm. And I was just checking for available domain names for the tour guide thing. Um, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's talk about artificial intelligence and we'll get yeah. back to this topic. I think yeah. through the, through this, through yeah. this portal that we're about to start going down. Um, first question, define either artificial intelligence or intelligence. Take, take your choice. It's, that's a tough one because, uh, I don't know that we, um, we really understand intelligence well enough. Uh, <laughs> if we if we could define it, we'd be a lot better off. But I, I, I tend to think of of uh, uh, you know, it, it as the ability to uh, integrate new unknown information and come up with an appropriate response uh, that was not previously available by rote. And so, what would be something that uh, we have today that would that would qualify or come close to qualifying as that in your mind? Uh, you mean in, in terms of machines? Mm -hmm. uh, nothing. And why, why do you think uh, you know, that? And I, I'm with Gary Marcus on this. Uh, you know, he kind of talked about, you know, I mean, if you look at how even, you know, the, the frontier of AI right now is, uh, is deep learning. Um, and it's great, but you still have to train it by showing it a gazillion examples of something. And after you show it a gazillion examples, uh, it can figure stuff out. And that's great. But it can't figure that out without being exposed to those examples. So we're a long way from, you know, kind of just, you know, flicking the switch, uh, having a machine take in its experience of the world and, and basically come to conclusions about it. I mean, we're basically, you know, we've got labeled training sets for very, you know, narrow domains. And yes, there's some amazing breakthroughs. But, you know, I, you know the, there's the famous Jan LeCun, who's the, the you know, the, the head of Facebook uh, uh, AI research, uh, used this analogy, he said, look, um, you know, the goal is unsupervised learning. You know, uh, it, you know he said, you know, if unsupervised learning is the cake, you know, we know how to make the icing, we know how to make the cherry, but we have no idea how to make the cake. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so many of the, I mean, again, I think AI is amazing, just like, you know, big data was amazing before it. And th th there's remarkable things happening in the field, but they can't be oversold. Well, uh, you know, because to me, uh, uh, 
you know, even if you look at look at, 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 at autonomous vehicles, what they're really good at is doing something that's well known better than any human can do it. You know, and and that includes, you know, recognizing and responding to certain kinds of known hazards. Uh, but they're still very limited in dealing with completely new situations. Now, th there are certainly very powerful advantages. You know, I mean, for example, one of the reasons why, you know, self-driving cars will get better is, you know, you have one accident and, you know, every machine can learn it. But I also think that the, 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 the biggest problem I see in, in, in AI is that it is still, it's still very limited and we tell it what to do. And the problem is that we tell it very often to do the wrong things. And that's where the, the, the real risks come in. And, and I think Elon Musk took a little bit too much heat. I mean, I think he's sort of over the top in his sort of apocalypse. He's sort of mixing things when he kind of has these apocalyptic metaphors about rogue AI. And then when you press him, he says, well, it's like, uh, you know, some AI, you know, you know, doing stock market trading at the behest of a human trader that starts a war in order to, you know, pump some particular set of stocks, right? I go, yeah, that's totally credible, but that's not a problem with the AI. You know, <laughs> that's a problem with the human direction of the AI. Uh, you know, we're so far from the problem of, you know, the AI wakes up and says, oh, I think I'm going to, I'm going to go start a war. Um, you know, or you, you know, you look at, you know, what is a real risk is we have autonomous weapons that, you know, autonomous drones say that weaponized drones that are, you know, allowed to make their own decisions about who to, who to, who to shoot. And, you know, there's some real risks there, but that's like, that's, we, we built these things. We told them that it was okay to do this thing. I mean, I, I don't think we're in a place where, you know, the, the Terminator style model where one day the, you know, the thing wakes up and decides I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of the humans. That's not the fear. The fear is, you know, we're creating new technologies that give more power to people who uh, are going to use it unwisely. And, and very often that we're, we're setting things up and we don't understand the consequences yet. You know, so it, it's, uh, as I said, I mentioned it's the, the, you know, the Mickey and the broomsticks problem. Uh, you know, we don't quite know how, you know, what, what we're asking for. And, and, and I see a lot of the problems in our economy fall into that category when we're saying, you know, we had this theory, you know, make money for shareholders and it'll be great for the economy. And, you know, so globalization went unchecked, you know, technological unemployment went unchecked. And then we kind of suddenly wake up and, and we have this populist revolt because there were a whole lot of people who were left behind and they said, hey, what about us? You know, this was great. You know, you've been managing the economy for the benefit of, uh, of, of, of wealthy people and, and we're not so happy now. <laughs> Uh, and, and so there were some untoward effects. And, and, and so, again, I, my goal here with, with thinking about AI is, is how do we make better choices in what we tell it to do? You know, so, as I say in the book, you know, we're building a race of jinns, you, know, uh, uh, you know, like the, the, the spirits of Arabian mythology who do exactly what you tell them. And if you don't phrase it quite right, uh, uh, you know, they can, they can really screw their masters. And, and that's the worry. You know, we have to figure out what it is we're really telling them. 
Well, but that's not a particularly new problem, right? I mean, a technology by its very nature magnifies what humans are able to do. You can, exactly, you, can, exactly. you can make the same argument like the television. Yes, now a million people can see, but what are, what, what are you going to put on it? What are you going well, to say? You can say it with the A-bomb. You can say, I mean, this is a really old, old problem. Why do you, and, and what we generally do, of course, is we imperfectly plow our way through. So that, that's you, are right. you that, arguing think, that AI is somehow a different thing than no, television I, I, or a bomb, or, or no? What? I'm I'm saying that it's the same thing, and and everybody should stop pretending that it's fundamentally different. You know, I had this really interesting conversation with Charles Duhigg, uh, who's the author of a book called The Power of Habit. Uh, when we were at Aspen uh, Ideas Festival recently, uh, Charles and I did a conversation about my book. It's uh, it's actually uh, online, uh, but. I had been to his talk about the power of habit, and he was talking about nail biting. And, and they, they did, there's been a lot of, of studies, uh, neurological studies on, on nail biting and what drives that habit. The point is, there's, a, there's something that activates a habit, and it's some stimulus. And uh, people tend to bite their nails when they're tense because the pain of biting your nails actually drives out the tension. And, and I was thinking about that, and I thought, I think all this fear of AI is nail-biting because there's this deeper tension going on at work in our society where we know there's something wrong. We don't really know what it is. And so we're, you know, we're kind of inventing monsters uh, in the same way that we, you know, if you look at the, the history of Japanese horror movies, you know, it was, that, was the, that was dealing with you know, the atom bomb. You know, it was like, yeah, yes, there's some monster coming and it's destroying Japanese cities, you know, Godzilla or whatever. Uh, and, and actually, it's all summed up beautifully by this great line from the psychiatrist uh, R.D. Lang, who was very popular back in the 70s. And he had this wonderful line in, in uh, one of his books. It was, a psychosis is not a disease, it's a cure. You know, it's somebody's attempt to adapt to something that they can't handle. And so your thesis is we're worried about AI, rogue AI, because we're tense about what exactly? Well, I think we're tense about uh, the state of, of technology in our lives. You know, there's something awry. Uh, you know, we're, we're just not, we're not comfortable with, you know, where the, the world is going. And, and I, I think that, you know, I was applying it more specifically to the, you know, the ways that the, you know, the, the economy has become radically more unequal uh, and, and radically less fair. But that's not the only thing we're, you know, we're worried about privacy. We're worried about uh, distraction. We're worried about the pace. Uh, you know, we're worried about being manipulated. And, uh, you know, there's all these fears that, that we don't quite have a handle on. and you know, kind of imagining, you know, the rogue AI is sort of the, you know, is the monster movie version of all these fears of, of current technology. Well, m maybe that is, maybe, maybe that is the case, but I've, I've actually thought that the concern stemmed more from, so it used to be we had this technology like a, like a carburetor. And if you, Took, somebody handed you a carburetor and you fiddled with it, poked at it and did all this stuff with it. You could kind of more or less figure out what it does. And then 
you have a whole new kind of technology like a smartphone and you take the back off that thing and you look at it and you can't for the life of you figure out how it does what it does. And then you, you get this newer technology, it's artificial intelligence, and you, you just hear snippets of things where people say um, it will make a suggestion and maybe we don't even know why it made that suggestion. We can't even figure out why. And it, that feels like a whole different kind of thing. I, it, I don't know. Again, I feel like that's somewhat overstated. Uh, it, it, it's true, but it's true in a, in a way that many, many other things are true. There's, there's probably a huge number of things that uh, we have made very, very productive use of that we didn't fully understand. Uh, you know, you know, like you, you, you know, you take, uh, you know, drugs, you know, what's the actual effective, you know, uh, pathway by which some drug performs its magic. You know, they're still studying some of these things. You know, they don't really understand it. They just see, hey, we did this thing and it worked. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, people were, uh, you know, we're flying before we fully understood the, 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 the physics of, you know, of aerodynamics. Uh, you know, if we'd fully understood it, uh, we would have done it right, uh, you know, from the get-go, right? You know, the, the, you learn by doing it. And I think we're just in the early stages of that learning by doing. And yes, you know, when AIs come up with unexpected results, uh, you know, people study the hell out of it. I mean, think about what's happening as a result of the, you know, the AlphaGo victories. They're understanding the game of Go in new ways. You know, it's like, yeah, and when it, it did these unexpected moves that nobody understood how it got to them, but now everybody's kind of going, wow, I'm, you know, and they're, they're kind of, you know, understanding the game more deeply. So, again, I, I don't think it's profoundly different. Uh, you know, so the two big arguments, that's one of them. And I think, again, you know, algorithms that produce results that we, we want to be able to interpret, real issue. We have to be able to kind of go back and understand, well, what when we put in different kinds of data. But, you know, fact is putting, you know, data through a process and understanding what's going on in a black box is true in a lot of areas. Uh, we have to solve for that. Uh, 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 and the other, the other fear, of course, is is the rogue AI fear, which is these things, you know, the, the Nick Bostrom superintelligence notion that, you know, these things will bootstrap themselves, and once they you know, get to a certain kind of activation energy, it's kind of a runaway reaction. Um, and, well, let's, uh, yeah. let's, let's and, and, and you know, we had that. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, again, I, I, I'm with Andrew Ng, who said. Uh, Overpopulation said, worrying on about Mars. that is like worrying yeah. about overpopulation on Mars. We're so far from it. You know, the pe you'll notice that the people who express that fear are uh, often coders. Well, the, the, the coders. people who express it are the scientists, uh, the, the entrepreneurs. You know, so it's like it's Bill Gates, it's Elon Musk, it's it's uh, Stephen Hawking. You know, uh, you know, it's not. You know, the people who are deep into AI research. They're mm -hmm. like, no, we're nowhere near that. You know. Well, let's talk about that. That's really the interesting question to me. Uh, which is why we're not. So you you made a really interesting comment at the very beginning of, of all of that. You said that we're nowhere near being able to flip a switch where the computer takes in the experience of the world. So my first question is, is that possible that, can a computer actually be sentient? Can it exp 
experienced the world or were you using that metaphorically? Well, I mean, I, there is sort of, there is a really interesting set of questions around whether uh, intelligence needs to be embodied. Uh, and this has been a you know subject in science fiction as well for, for decades. You know, does it need to be embodied? You know, uh, does it need to have the risk of, of death? You know, I mean, you know, there, there are certain kinds of things that, that, uh, uh, that seem to spark, uh, you know, evolutionary leaps. And, uh, you know, do I believe that, uh, you know, we will never get there? No. I, I, you know, and I, I think about the complexity of, of the human brain and I say, okay, assuming that, uh, uh, you know, we got to a machine with equivalent complexity, do I believe it could be inhabited by it, by a spirit that, for all intents and purposes, was uh, uh, you know the equivalent of a human? Absolutely. You know, do I believe that that thing could evolve faster than humans? And absolutely. You know, but we're just a long way from that. You know, and and, the, and, and we don't actually have any. We don't even have a theory of how we might get there. You know, it's, it's worth talking with Gary, Gary Marcus on this. Uh, is a neuroscientist, but also an AI. He just sold his company to Uber. You know, it's like, you know, look, yeah, we have the illusion that computers can read, but they can't read. I mean, they can't, they can't you give, you can't give them a body of, of, of text and have them, you know, understand it and draw conclusions from it. You know, they can't map it back from, you know, to reality. They, so they can do certain things way better than humans can. But like this fundamental thing is that, that, you know, we basically created the illusion that they can do these things, but they really can't. Now, that's not to say, though, that they, you know, I mean, the thing that's going to be really interesting is how we pair human and machine intelligence, because machines can clearly do things way better than we can. And that's why I'm, I, I think that the future is in augmentation of humans, not in you know, that we really have to be worrying about machines replacing us. Do you mean and, like yeah. physically augmenting our physical forms or you just mean kind of like working well, together? I think, I think we will eventually get to uh, actually augmenting ourselves in deep ways. But, you know, just think about, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, many years ago kind of thinking, wow, wouldn't it be awesome to be like a passenger pigeon or any of these birds that seem to have this magical ability to know where they are at any time, you know? And they can do these 11,000, you know, mile migrations and end up, you know, exactly where they, they, they wanted to, you know, across open ocean. Go, how magical is that? And you go, oh, wait, we can do that now. You know, it's not, in, 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 you know, it's not in our brains. It's in our, you know, pockets. Uh, you know, will that eventually be in our brains? I think it's quite conceivable. I mean, there's big breakthroughs happening in, uh, you know, brain-machine interfaces. And do I believe that we'll have new, you know, senses absolutely do i believe that uh you know do i know what the interface will be how much of that will be you know brain muscle interfaces how much will be optic uh how much will be direct you know brain i have no idea there's going to be all kinds of interesting breakthroughs there the other thing that's super interesting i just heard a talk by george church the famous uh, geneticist and he was making the case that everybody who's sort of talking about this race with the machine assumes that biology is standing still and it's like no actually you know at this point biology is on a faster moore's law curve than machines 
you know, that we're, we're actually, you know, we're, we're at the point where we're starting to have amazing, you know, like, you know, you know, I met with somebody else, the guy who basically funded the technology that became Illumina, the gene sequencing company. And he's like, we're on a path where uh, we'll be able to synthesize a complete human for $10,000. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, th- there's some stuff coming out of biotech uh, that is going to be utterly mind-blowing. Well, let me ask one more question along along these same lines, because... Um, you know, you mentioned the complexity of the human brain and appealing to that as the reason we don't understand human intelligence better. But, of course, the, the situation is far grimmer than that in that there's, you know, the nematode worm, has their brains had all of 302 neurons, right? And, you know, they're the most successful creature on the planet. 10% of all animals are nematode worms. And the, people have spent 20 years in the Open Worm Project trying to model those 300 neurons and make mm-hmm. a nematode worm. And right. even after 20 years, there's people in the project who say it may just not be possible. Yeah. So what do you think's going on? Do you think that, that perhaps neurons themselves are as complex as supercomputers and that, that this really isn't going to ever yield fruit? Certainly if you can't do the nematode worm after 20 years, like kind of what does that tell you about the nature of Well, I guess I would say on that, uh, is the amount of time that we have not been able to do something uh, is uh, no indication that we will never be able to do it. You know, I mean, hey, you know, we split the atom, you know, uh, which you know seemed unthinkable. No, but the, we, but it's obvious it's harder than we thought it would be. Like just at first glance, you would think, oh. 300 neurons, 302 neurons, surely we can figure out how those come together to make a worm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I understand. But I, again, I think that, uh, yes, uh, there, the, but there are step changes in science uh, with new kinds of technology that, that do let us see more deeply, uh, do things more deeply. I mean, again, you know, we thought we were there with, uh, you know, with, with, uh, uh, you know, complete genomes, and we realize, oh no, it's actually gene expression. There's all this, you know, much more complicated stuff, and you know that, you know, it's 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 going to keep getting harder and more complicated, and uh, but we're also bringing more and more power to bear on the problem. And you know, I guess I just I, I think that that uh, we are, you know, there are step function changes in our ability to do things and to see things. And, and, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we certainly can get to a, a step function change. Now, again, I mean, you, you could make the same case about AI. My point, though, is uh, you know, we might one day do that. Uh, so therefore, let's be scared of it now. Uh, you know, and I, I'm all for like we need to sort of, uh, you know, be prepared to regulate dangerous technologies. The thing that I worry about is that when you do that, you have to be worried about the right things. And it's very rare that we have enough foresight to worry about the right things. But if we can't know what to worry about, your whole thing with WTF is we're telling the computers to do this the wrong right. thing isn't that like the same no currency? no no because what, I, what i'm really saying is you know we have to actually 
think about what it is we want. Because to me, you know, anticipating, you know, and, and sort of countering the worst fear is not actually a very productive way to go about life. You know, what you really want to do is to say, what do we aspire to? Who do we want to be? Uh, and, uh, you know, so I'm really interested in framing the questions around, okay, we, we think, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know, for everyone. And I'm kind of going, how does technology help us do that? How does it make a better world for everyone? Not just for a few, but for everyone. And if that's our goal, how do we think differently about technology? Then if we think our goal is, well, you know, let's disrupt. You know, our goal is for our company to make a boatload of money for ourselves and our investors, and we don't really give a shit about what else happens. Yeah, you know, that's actually I go, that's not where the you get the right right uh, you know governance structures. And 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 the, to me, the role of forethought is not to uh, you know, sort of anticipate and correct all the possible wrongs. It's actually to create it's actually to create sort of boundary conditions and incentives that encourage the right things. And and to, and to create feedback loops where you identify things that are going wrong uh, and, and correct for them. Uh, you know, so governance is not about uh, you know, and, and this is obviously clearly true in something like computer security as well. You know, sort of like, well, we'll build a big wall and nobody will be able to get through it. Clearly has failed as a strategy. Uh, it's how do you become more adaptive? Uh, you know, so for example, you know, you kind of go, okay, what makes systems adaptive? Uh, how, how are we going to live with the changes that we create as a society through technology? You know, uh, and and what does that look like? And and you know, how are we going to make sure that the things that we do uh, don't increase uh, the potential for 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 violence, uh, for inequality, for you know, again, what are our values? Because ultimately, you know, uh, uh, you know, the technology that we build will be shaped by our values. And uh, you know, th that's the kind of choices that I'm I'm concerned about. But is there, I mean, our values really are the, the net expression of all the individual choices everybody makes, right? And kind of day to day. And day -to -day well, day -to -day yeah, day -to -day. I know. But, but what we don't understand is the extent to which those choices are framed for us. And, and again, this to me is one of the lessons that I take from, you know, computer platforms. You know, like if you think about the internet and why it became such a, you know, a roaring success was it had an architecture of what I call an architecture of participation. It was designed with very simple protocols, with very little central control, uh, with, uh, you know, kind of the equivalent of the golden rule, you know, the, the, the robustness principle as John Postel expressed in RFC 761 was, uh, you know, uh, you know, be rigorous in what you send out, be liberal in what you accept from others. It's like freaking the golden rule out of the Bible, you know, but that's kind of what made, you know, 
uh, TCP/IP work. You know, it's like okay, we're gonna we, you know we're gonna ask everybody to send out you know packets in a in a, in a very regular structured format. But if you get a a bad one, you know don't you know go go all crazy. You know, same thing with the web. I mean, the the if you look at the original hypertext design. Uh, you know, ideas that came out of Xanadu and Ted Nelson, they were all, you know, this thing has to be rigorously tightly controlled and everybody has to do this. And, and the web was like, you know, you know, uh, you just link to somebody else. And if they go away, you just throw up an error message. You know, there was sort of, they figured out some, some good heuristics that turned out to be very productive of, of randomness and innovation within a set of constrained uh, uh, agreements if you like. I mean, I, I think there's something really interesting about communication systems that depend on uh, agreement protocols, you know, and, and that was what was interesting about Unix and Linux to me as, a, you know, as I originally kind of came across them was like they were a communications oriented operating system where it was like, okay, uh, programs are going to agree uh, to put out uh, data in this format and to consume it in the same format. And so anybody could write a program that could be the other end of a Unix pipe. Uh, you know, TCP IP, same thing. You can build anything. You just don't build it into the core. You build at, out of the endpoints. Uh, and so, you know, we have to figure out what those principles are for the systems we're building today. You know, how do we figure out what are the core architectural principles that will allow for continued innovation, uh, will allow for, uh, you know, for there to be real competition you know, and, and there's a lot of lessons in life. You know, it's like, you, you know, if if you build systems where it's really easy for one, uh, you know, party to consume all the resources, they'll eventually, you know, make everybody else go extinct and then they'll go extinct themselves, right? So you go, okay, so protecting a platform, you know, like when I think about how this does this apply to policy, I say, okay, great. It, platforms start to trade against their participants. You know, platforms are a new part of the economy. You know, there's a lot of interesting economic work on this. You know, superstar firms, uh, you know, driving much bigger returns. That's a driver of inequality. You know, the recent papers from Montour, uh, some other ones out of the OECD, also on sort of intersector productivity gains. And you go, okay, so these guys are going to consume their ecosystem. The new antitrust is not how do we make sure that these guys are competing with each other? They want to make sure that if you're a platform that you're not competing with your ecosystem. You know, this is the Google Yelp problem. You know, Google used to point to Yelp and it's like, well, we think we can do a better job by pointing to, by delivering these services ourselves, you know, and, you know, that's actually uh, a dangerous path because effectively once Google consumes the entire ecosystem, you know, the whole thing goes belly up. So, Switching gears just slightly here, um, that's kind of a vision you have for how you think we ought to kind of collectively proceed down down into this world, that we have a, a discussion about what our values are, and from that discussion, we get best practices that allow us to kind of shape the world in a del more deliberate way than, than what's going on now. Mm -hmm. I get all that. So... That's kind of the idealistic half of it. What do you think is actually going to happen? Like, what the real fear people have about AI, of course, is that every, everybody reads a headline that says, I don't care what you do for a living, you know, a computer's going to be able to do it. And, you know, the fear is peddled to people in a way that makes them um, 
you know, just afraid for their livelihood, their ability to provide, to take care of themselves and so forth. So, and, and you know, there's like three completely different narratives that came, come up around that one. Yeah. Uh, is, well, I mean, I, I, I think that the, uh, the ultimate constraint on, on that is not whether or not computers can do everything. It's that if computers can do everything and we don't find some other way to pay people, there's nobody to buy what the computers produce. You know, because an economy is an ecosystem. And this is what's driving, you know, it's, it's really the, the reason why we're in the beginning of a big economic counterswing, right? Because and this is, it's mostly been focused not on tech, but on globalization. But, you know, uh, the same thing applies to tech. You know, at some point, you go, well, well, who are the customers? You know, we kick the can down the road by just telling, well, the, the customers can keep borrowing money. Right. And so we, you know, we, we sort of did it with debt, you know, and then we were like, well, you know, and it was also, well, the customers can have two income households. And, you know, so there are all these things that have been kicking the can down the road for the last 40 years. And we're kind of run that a, a runway, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, we're ending up going down, the, you know, the path where, uh, you know, there's all these people who are very unhappy because, uh, you know, this, you know, wonderful economy that's made you know, a lot of people really, really rich has made a lot of other people much poorer. And those people are basically getting their revenge. I mean, you know, uh, Andy McAfee said it to me over breakfast one, one time, he said, look, the people will rise up before the machines do. And that's what's happening today. You know, so the ultimate cons constraint is the fact that the people who are being put out of work will eventually say, screw you, they're going to take the government and they're going to basically start penalizing it. So, you know, uh, uh, you know, and often in a very bad way, you know, so one of the, uh, you know, and, and of course, the, the, the real risk to me, which is far greater than the risk of AI, you know, uh, taking over is the risk of, uh, you know, populist autocrats who talk the language of I'm going to look after you, you know, your interests, which is exactly what Trump is doing, what Maduro is doing, uh, you know, but in practice are looters themselves. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, a pathway that a lot of countries have gone down and they go down that way uh, until there's a real revolution. And I, I think that there's far greater risk of war and revolution, uh, you know, than there is of, of um, you know, rogue AI you know, taking, taking, you know. So you, you said earlier, and I just want to be clear about this. You believe we're already experiencing technologic unemployment, but technology has made people unable to uh, be employable. Uh, no, not exactly. What, what I've said is, well, first of all, uh, well, let me ask you just a, a straightforward question. Are, 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 Rank and file people in the United States, as an example, you used forty years ago. Are are they are they better off today than they were forty no, years no, ago? No, and I say, I'm saying that they're, they're, that a lot of them are not, and, and and but I'm not saying that that's that purely due to technology. It's due to a lot of choices that we made. Um, you know, I, in a lot of ways, I, I think of financial markets as the first rogue AI. You know, we've uh, you know we basically you know built the this giant you know economic machine. Uh, and, and turned it loose with our blessing, 
to, to basically rape the rest of society. And, uh, you know, but I, it, it, you know, it was doing it before, but it's just gotten a lot better at it, <laughs> and, and partly through technology. But uh, I, I, I thought, uh, you know, the original definition of technological uh, Keynes, uh, right. came from Keynes. And it was the inability of society to adapt to technology quickly enough, right? And in other words, it's a temporary phase. It's not something, you know, people kind of go, well, technological unemployment, that means that, you know, everybody uh, gets put out of work. Uh, You know, and I've seen this again, kind of look at my career, you know, open source software, you know, Jim Alchin, open source is an intellectual property destroyer. You know, all the people could see was that open source software was going to destroy the big proprietary software companies and make that, you know, this super lucrative industry not lucrative. They didn't understand that it would make possible Google and Amazon and the like, and that there were going to be, you know, a future of companies that were just as lucrative or more lucrative, you know, who leveraged this and found new levers of competitive advantage. You know, so, yeah, there were a lot of people who, who found technological unemployment, uh, you know, in one industry. And we're seeing this today, you know, big enterprise software companies being, you know, uh, turfed by cloud companies. You know, that's technological unemployment, you know, uh, and those people have to adapt, you know. And, and you know, the thing about when I, when I look at something like, you um, uh, you know, sort of people being put out of work in factories because the factories are uh, more efficient. What I say is, okay, what did we miss? You know, it's not that we put the people out of work. It's that we didn't do new work to make up for the work that was now more efficient. And that's why I kind of, as I've kind of developed my book, I really came to see that the changing you know, values around what businesses are supposed to do. You know, because doing more, I mean, you look around, you know, uh, there's a lot that needs to be done. And if we were doing the things that needed to be done, we'd be putting everybody to work. So the question isn't, does technology put people out of work? It's what is causing us to use technology to put people out of work rather than putting them to work solving new kinds of problems. You know, because... But that all feels just like semantics. I mean, what, what happens, no, no, of it course... Is, it isn't at all. I mean, literally... Because what it, happens is, is, is that as an industry... I mean, that's... Look, right. you can either top-down do it and say you are now going to be a baker, but and nope, no, we don't need bakers. No, 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 you no, I think that's totally false. Right. You or, or you can, I mean, we have full employment. Unemployment in, in this country is 5 to 10% for the last 200 years, with the exception of the Depression, which, and, and, and that's against the backdrop of a rising standard of living. And that's year after year after year after year after year after year. And to somehow paint well, that. Actually, standard of living saying, is, not, is not rising anymore for a great large number of people. Well, th- but there, but here, here's the thing that I would just say about this stuff. Uh, what you have to understand is that. Uh, the amount of of money that is being 
invested in the real economy has been going down. A huge amount of the money that, quote, is being made today is being made through uh, the, the financial equivalent of fake news. You know, uh, 85% of all, quote, investment is investment in driving stock price and then profiting from the stock price. 85%, only 15% of corporate profits gets reinvested in actually growing businesses, in hiring people. You know, when, uh, you know, American Airlines tried to pay their people more recently, it was seen as, uh, you know, that they were robbing the shareholders, right? You know, there's, a, there's an ideology at work that uh, has basically gutted the economy. It's not actually that people are being put out of work by technology. It's that we basically said, no, actually, actually, there was this great line my mom had once about Bill Gates in the, in the you know, before he was, he was a humanitarian when he was the rapacious capitalist. You know, she said, my, my, he sounds like someone who'd come over to your house uh, for dinner and then say, hmm, I think I'm going to have all the mashed potatoes. You know, and, and we have a set of people uh, you know, Martin Straley was a great example recently. Who came, you know, came to the economic, you know, dinner party and said, "I think I'm going to have all the mashed potatoes." And, and you know, that has nothing to do with technology. You know, and, and so the point is that that we have crumbling infrastructure, right? We have uh, people who are being paid less, who, whose wages have not gone up with productivity. We have people constantly trying to. Uh, you know, cut down the amount that they spend on labor right, and using technology to do that because we've actually created incentives in the system. We've told CEOs your pay should be tied to uh, stock price. That was a new innovation. It was a bad innovation. We, we give, uh, you know, preferential tax treatment to, to money that you make through capital appreciation. And we actually charge more for, for, for money that's made through labor. You know, it's all kinds of crazy things that we do uh, where our economy is organized around the needs of the financial industry and the owners of capital. And I really think we will look back on this period, you know, uh, you know, where we it's almost like we used to laugh. At the, they used to have the divine right of kings. Well, we're living in the age of the divine right of capital. And, you know, realistically, we should be applying this technology that we have to solve the world's problems. We have massive problems heading our way. And I think climate change is going to be the thing that gets us out of this malaise in the same way that World War II got us out of the Great Depression. Because we're going to go, oh shit, you know, and we're going to suddenly gear up and start, you know, working to solve real problems rather than just, you know, having a bunch of, of, of fat and happy capitalists sort of uh, taking as much out of the system as they possibly can. And, uh, you know, either that or we're going to end up with some revolutions. And again, I don't think we have to go that way. And I think the two things that we need to do are, one, we need companies to realize that it's in their self-interest uh, to put this technology to work, making things better. And I, and I see companies, you know, like I say, Amazon or Tesla, they're like, they're working on, like, how do we actually do more with this technology? They're using capital markets correctly, which is to fund, you know, impossible futures. Uh, you know, how do we start understanding that these technologies need to take their workers into account, not just their customers? And so there's some, so some fresh business thinking. 
We also need policy innovations because you know, we, we basically have to understand that more of the money has to flow to, to people, not just to the owners of capital, because it doesn't you know, work for our society as a whole if you have a small number of very wealthy people and a large number of people who are hopeless. So you know, Europe has historically done a better job of that, Germany in particular. You know, and you kind of, people kind of go, well, it's capitalism versus communism. I go, no, it's one version of capitalism. And our version of capitalism right now is not a very good one. You know, after World War II, we look back on that prosperous era, you know, full employment was the goal. It wasn't, you know, share price appreciation. So what do you actually think um, is going to happen? Like if you, when you look, or do you, are, are you saying it's indeterminate at this point? But when you well, look uh, uh, five or 10 years out, what, I mean, paint me a picture of, how you think this is all going to unfold because you've got a lot of apocalyptic stuff mixed, you know, climate change yeah. and crumbling infrastructure and hollowed out economy. And then you have a lot of hopeful sounding stuff. Yeah. And, and it, it, it uh, kind of going back and forth, trying to draw a bead on where, how all that well, nets out. Uh, you know, I guess, the, you know, it's the subtitle of my book. It's up to us. We have, we have choices to make, you know, we actually, you know, and again, I'm very hopeful because I look at all the entrepreneurs who are trying to invent better futures. And, uh, you know, there are people who are sitting there wrestling with hard problems. I, you know, this is a poem I like to cite uh, by Rilke, uh, where he, he talks about Jacob wrestling with the angel. You know, he didn't think he'd beat the angel. He just, but you, you come way stronger from the fight. And I look at those entrepreneurs, you know, Jeff Huber at Grail, you know, it's like his wife dies of cancer and he's like, I'm going to make a blood test for early detection of cancer. And, you know, raised you know hundred million dollars this crazy ass goal of you know using technology to to basically tackle a problem that's really really hard and i go that's the possibility of the future or, or zipline is another one i cite in my company it's like yeah hey, let's do on-demand of drones to deliver blood medicine in a country with no infrastructure you know, it's like wow we have all this amazing new technology we can solve a problem you know, in a country where, you know, the leading cause of mortality is, is uh, uh, you know, blood loss, you know, you know, maternal, you know, blood loss, after, you know, maternal hemorrhage, you know, after birth, you know, and you go, wow, we can solve that problem. It's like all around the world, there are problems to be solved. I, 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 I rant at the people who are like, well, we want to build the new high tech super city. I go, guess what? There are 20 million people, you know, refugees, you know, out of Syria. You know, they need a new city more than, you know, some, you know, uh, you know, high tech, you know, bros need a new city, you know, uh, for them to enjoy their, you know, if you go solve that problem, you'll actually build the city of the future. Yeah. And, and so I just think, again, my role in this industry has always been as, you know, encouraging people to, to work on things that are hard, that make the world a better place and uh, to use the latest technology to do that. And that's kind of a lot of uh, what I'm trying to say here. It's like, hey, you know, we, we, we have a lot of things to worry about. We have enormous new powers. Let's put them to work in the right way, tackling the hard problems. All right. Problem. That is a wonderful place to leave it. So I want to thank you so much for a fascinating and wide-ranging hour. And I uh, hope sometime we can have you back on the show. Go ahead and one more time tell everybody the name of the book. Uh, it's uh, WTF, 
What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us uh, by Tim O'Reilly. And right. uh, it's on, uh, uh, on Amazon right now. All right. Thanks a bunch, Tim. All right. Great. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, we recommend you also tune in to the AI podcast produced by our friends at Dell EMC and Intel, using technology to solve some of the toughest challenges on the planet. The AI podcast is available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.